0: The date is Friday, March 5th, and you're listening to Entertain This, a thought-provoking podcast encapsulating all things entertainment. On this episode of the podcast, we are once again invited into Alex's English literature class to dissect a book that many of us were probably assigned to read in high school, but never got around to it, of course. It's the classic from Franz Kafka entitled The Metamorphosis. And one thing is clear, this author had some issues. We'll find out what specifically and see what it is that made him tick. Enjoy.
1: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of your favorite entertainment podcast, encapsulating all things entertainment. It's entertained. Oh, yeah. Do your bit, do your oh. part. Uh, <laughs> holy shit can
0: we get a bass boost on that in post
1: (laughs) that's that's up to you man you had it remember okay i want to we're going to talk about some kind of darker themes today but i want to start on um something just a small little beginning bit that we can end uh relatively quick but it's something i want to talk about because i'm really excited about it um Uh, who are you again my name's alex i'm michael and i'm nick thanks for reminding me and i'm sorry (laughs) about my dog's barking anyway um so i want to start today by talking about something that happened in the news and i'm going to date this podcast because i want to talk about it with you boys i want to talk about it on our entertainment podcast is that okay cool
2: yeah cool cool great
1: so today they released the title of the new spider-man movie oh they uh, did they actually
2: this. did not like
1: the th- official release of what the next spider-man movie is going to be called is i saw it it happened today. yeah it's it spider-man
2: happened. spider-man home slice right
1: Yes, Spider-Man Home <laughs> Slice. No, you nailed it. No, it's Spider-Man Home Wrecker. No, that's not it either. Um, <laughs> it's a Spider-Man Phone Home. No? Nope. No? Okay, try one more time. It is Spider-Man No Way Home is no what it's home. officially called. Spider-Man No Way Home.
2: That is ripe for speculation.
1: It is. It really is. And we can speculate right here, right now, what we think is going to happen if you guys want to. I Multiverse previous movie multiverse definitely seems like something that might be in the works now here's what i want to remind you is spider-man is releasing the third spider-man is releasing this christmas before dr strange multiverse of madness
2: yeah but why does dr strange need to go into the multiverse
1: exactly so it has to be set up in this film it doesn't have to be but it'd be awesome if it was It sure would be cool. Uh, People are speculating that Wanda is going to be a huge player in this new Spider-Man movie as well. I haven't
2: finished WandaVision. I'm only like three episodes in, so don't spoil anything for me.
1: If You can catch up right now and experience this with everybody else. There should be two more episodes, but a lot of people think that there are going to be three more episodes. Mm. Secret secrets. (laughs) Um but I'm just really excited. It's a great title. And yes, we can speculate all day about what's going to happen in it. I have my own theories that I uh, I don't think I want to put down to official print just because I don't want to be proven wrong and somebody to like make me listen to it and make me feel dumb. I don't want that <laughs> to happen in what? the future. Hey,
2: you didn't know this thing that you didn't know. I'm like,
1: okay. <laughs> hey, you didn't know this thing that nobody knew, but you said it like you knew. So you're dumb. No, I don't want that. I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want to be attacked like that.
0: Where does Spider Man <laughs> live? Where is his home? That's what I want to know. I haven't seen the previous movies, so I don't, I don't know anything about this new. Uh,
1: have you never seen a Spider Man movie? Do I? Have I, I recently now? watched uh,
0: Into the Spider Verse, though that was a pretty good film.
1: Okay, so put two and two together. Where did the Spider Verse take place? New York City. At a boy. Gotham. Atta boy. No, no, it's not Gotham. <laughs> Swing and a miss. <laughs> that, that ain't anyways. it. Anyway, let's get to the actual topic that we're talking about at hand today, um, one that that I feel is uh, pertinent to the current world climate that we are in, uh, one that we are all in danger of falling victim to, and I think what we're talking about today acts as a green light across the lake, uh, guiding us to, to what we should avoid. So let's get started.
2: Great Gatsby, right?
1: Yeah. yeah, that was well. That was a great Gatsby reference, but I'm just mm-hmm. getting you guys in the literary mood. Oh, okay. We're not talking about Great Gatsby today, unfortunately. <laughs> Maybe another day. Yeah. Maybe once the Muppets the get their Great Gatsby version. Please. please, please give us a Muppets Great Gatsby version. <laughs> I want to see Kermit hit somebody with his car. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> oh, sorry. I thought you were Miss Piggy. <laughs> All right, sorry about that, and I'm real sorry.
2: Okay, uh, getting, but in the end, it into was into... Miss Piggy all along. It always Kermit wants, just took always the Kermit be. just took the fall. Yeah, I gotta Kermit do what I gotta do
1: for eye. my girl, you know.
0: Kermit, be simpin'.
1: That's true. Okay, all, all goofs aside, all goofs aside, we're gonna be getting into uh, some rather serious territory today um, as we explore the twisted mind and tales of Mister Franz Kafka. Yes, he is German. Mm -hmm. Nick, you were correct in saying it. Um, He is, in fact, German, and we're going to be getting into uh, his life, uh, his literary works, and how those two combined lead to a very, very sad but honest story. Um, So let's get started. We pass people in our day-to-day lives in abundance, whether we're walking down the street or sharing a quick glance as we reach for things at the supermarket. These uh, seemingly mundane interactions usually don't linger long in our minds. It's fair to assume these small interactions rarely lead you to ponder what is going on inside of the mind of that stranger, uh, that person on the bus, or what may have caused that eye contact in the supermarket. So in our day-to-day lives, we usually find ourselves so wrapped up in our own struggles uh, that thinking of others' hardships becomes an afterthought. Uh, Self-care is, of course, important, but is it possible that this disconnected way of thinking simply turns us into a cog powering this great machine? Uh, If so... How often is it the case that someone gets pulled into this machine and torn apart by the cogs, just assumedly doing their jobs, um, being worn further and further down until their eventual replacement, too, falls victim to the machine? Uh, this cautionary tale is what we will explore today as we take a look into the dark life of the famous author Franz Kafka. I ask you, say with me, to... Entertain this. this. You guys didn't say
2: it. Oh, entertain say, this.
1: Say, say, say okay. it. Say it with me. Entertain to this. Enter, entertain, enter, entertain. Entertain. the this, <coughs> this this podcast. Podcast. Got it. All Nailed right. It.
2: Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> that was like, a lot in your intro bit. <laughs> it was like the like. Did you did you ever did you ever have a did you ever did have ever dream <laughs> that you, ever, <did> you ever <laughs> yeah. thought that you had
0: that you... <laughs> That was a lot. Um, I'll, I'll see where you take it and reserve my comments.
2: I will say, I feel like I am perfectly qualified to talk about Kafka, uh, considering yeah? I have uh, wireframe glasses and a man bun.
1: I feel like I'm perfectly <laughs> equipped to talk about Kafka because I have depression.
2: Oh, that too. Yeah, I've got that.
1: Yeah, yeah, that too. Great.
2: <laughs> Ugh. Um, I, thought, I thought it was, would have been abundantly clear by now.
1: <laughs> so full transparency, let's talk just about me and Kafka before we jump into the life of Kafka and why I want to uh, talk about him today. Um, I'll be 100% transparent with you guys. Kafka was an author who had a number of books that uh, are often used in high school AP literature classes. Mm-hmm. Um as kind of a thing to study or to interpret or to analyze, which is kind of what we're going to be doing today. Um, and this this episode of the podcast is going to feel a lot like our episode on Waiting for Godot, uh, because that too was, uh, that's another example of sort of an AP uh, English style uh, book to study in high school. So a lot of people have either read this or been told to read it and didn't. Like me, I was told to read it <laughs> in high school and I did not. Uh, I also didn't take the AP Lit test, even though I took AP Lit. Um, cuz i first off i didn't i didn't think i was going to pass it so i figured you know what what's the point if i'm not even going to pass it um but secondly it was because i really hadn't read any of the books uh to be taking the quiz in the first place so for a long time kafka kind of rested in the back of my mind as this boring old author who wrote a book uh, that i was supposed to read in high school but i didn't uh until i got super into watching gilmore girls <laughs> <laughs> Exploring. You didn't see that one coming, did you? Nope. <laughs> so so as often the case in the show Gilmore Girls, um, one of the titular characters, one of the Gilmore Girls, uh, Rory Gilmore, often finds herself talking uh, in the form of authors she's read and books she's read and things that she's learned from these books. One of these books was a work by Kafka. It was actually um, the book that we are going to be kind of devoting half of this podcast to today and that book is uh the metamorphosis Mm. by friends kafka um in the show specifically uh rory is talking to a love interest of hers named uh jess and jess is this like leather jacket wearing old car driving bad boy who also reads like kafka and like hemingway and stuff like that and that's where they like meet yeah so you're pointing to yourself yeah, i also identify yeah. in that kind of a role <laughs> a so. of of
2: poetry, i see yes it's like mm, if if it's not if it's not a like phil philo- philosophical book on my shelf it is hemingway so <laughs> right and the wire room glasses and the man bun and and the depression the depression yeah
1: yeah those are all things that definitely define at least me and i guess you as well michael um but that being said watching this i was like you know how like girls will have that moment where they're like it's like a meme where she they like see something and they're like i should text him you know that kind of ongoing meme that's happening you look confused because you're an old man living inside of a 20 something year old but that's okay um I had that moment, but with books. (laughs) So, so I I was watching Gilmore Girls. They started talking about metamorphosis and Kafka. And I was like, oh, I should call him. I should call, I should call Kafka. I should read (laughs) metamorphosis. So I went out to a, uh, I went out to a half price books and I found a very nice copy of the metamorphosis as well as other stories by Kafka. Um, and I began reading it just to see what I had missed out on in high school, And in doing so, I was thrown into this, like, super deep world of metaphor and extended hyperbole um, that really spoke to me in a very weird way. Uh, Kafka writes in a way known as um, kind of writing in the absurd. We had talked about Theater of the Absurd when we talked about um, Waiting for Godot, which was trying to take these super difficult things about the human experience and act it out on stage in a way that isn't super straightforward, but kind of gives you the feeling of what um, the author was trying to portray. And that's the, like, theme of the entire show. Well, in, in this sense, this is the literary equivalent of that. So, let's start right from the beginning. You guys know that when I'm talking about things like this, I love delving into the history of the creator or the author to kind of see the deeper roots within the thing that we're talking about. So we're starting all the way at the beginning. Um, Franz Kafka was born on July 3rd, 1883, in, Aust- on, in Austria-Hungarian Empire um, to a German-speaking Jewish family. So this is a, a good number of years, but still right before World War I, Um, with all of the tension that eventually led to World War II. Nick, I'm sure that's something that that you're immediately uh, interested in and something that you probably picked up on, is this is a Jewish family living in Germany. Um,
0: Well, I mean, can we really call him German if he wasn't born in Germany?
1: Well, they were a German-speaking family and practiced a lot of German traditions, as well as um, the social ladder to which his father... uh, who was Hermann Kafka, uh, the social ladder he was trying to climb was mostly with, uh, German dignitaries and things like that.
0: Yeah. Back then, Austria, Hungary and Germany were like, were like this. (laughs) They were good friends.
1: They were, they were real good friends. And say that. So let's, let's, let's delve into his father because I think it's important if we're going to talk about Kafka to understand, uh, his father as well. And Herman Kafka, he was a a store owner who rose the social ladders from solely the sweat on his brow. Uh, He worked hard in a small clothing shop and then turned it into a popular and also thriving business. Um, And, and to, to which of that he took like great pride in the fact that he was able to kind of raise this business into what it was. And he was making, you know, hand over fist in, in cash and dineros. And in doing so, he, uh kind of made a name for himself Mm -hmm. so it was around that time where he was seeing all this success that he was blessed with his firstborn son um a pride all the same herman expected his son to become a proud loud and boisterous man as he himself was and take on the family legacy in that way this pride however uh would be fleeting from that moment on unfortunately. Because uh, at a young age, Franz Kafka developed uh, a small, sickly disposition. He was way underweight. He was constantly uh, ill of some means. He was covered in boils, and his constant state was that of melancholy. He just always seemed sad for no reason. Hmm. He showed uh, no signs of becoming the man that his father so desperately craved in an heir or even in a son. Um, and his father kind of hated him for that. It was a thing of, like, if you're not going to be the man who I need you to be, then you're not going to be my son at all. And other than blood, they really weren't related. From that moment on, um, Herman mistreated friends and kind of a, a, abused him in a way uh, both emotionally uh, we can assume physically but i haven't seen any evidence of that but definitely emotionally um becoming this sort of strain uh to his father and and this this these expectations that his father uh placed on him everything that franz kafka attempted in his earlier years had this air of doom surrounding it And a constant fear that whatever he tried, humiliation was right around the corner and following every step that he made. Because no matter what his mistakes were, no matter how young he was or how small he was, anything he did wrong, his father used it as a way of telling him that he was useless. So, like, if he tripped and dropped a bunch of stuff on the ground, he would get, like, hours and hours of lecture uh, telling him what an idiot he is and what a mistake he was. And, like, we're talking about a kid who hasn't even started school yet. That's how young we still are right now. Oof. Right. So in modern terms, a young Franz Kafka uh, suffered deeply from anxiety. Mm -hmm. Uh, This wasn't really something that was too recognized back then as an actual mental illness. Um, Mental illness itself wasn't really recognized uh, back in the late 1800s to early 1900s. It was still kind of thought of as like, oh, you're just sad. Like, that's an emotion people feel. You'll get over it. And that was like the medicine that you were diagnosed was you'll get over it, and that was it. Yeah, Abraham Lincoln, um,
0: famously known for his uh, melancholy uh, disposition on life.
1: Right, and it, it's the exact same. It was most likely some sort of a, a mental illness that went undiagnosed and unchecked just due to the fact that medicine hadn't developed that far yet. Yep. Um, all of this wasn't helped by the fact that uh, Kafka's father took to belittling him and referring to him as useless and pathetic all throughout his developmental years. And as a result, by the time Kafka had started school, uh, he had no self-esteem. And even though that that was the case and he kind of didn't see anything of himself, uh, Herman, his father, still demanded that Kafka look to be a peak specimen of intelligence to maintain this social standard that his father had worked so hard to fit into. Hmm. So... I think it's a very human story to like when you think of these famous authors, you never think of the fact that they really did have upbringings just like everybody else. There's always the like before fame that everyone's curious about because you're not born into it always, especially when it came to these like greats in, in literature. Um, in this case, it just feels superhuman to know that before he had even started school, like he thought nothing of himself he thought that he was nothing he thought he was good at nothing he didn't like anything he was sad about everything um and he was being forced into this role that really he didn't fit into um in in trying to make him fit in this prestigious role um herman forced franz to be sent to one of the most prestigious schools in all of germany um because sending his being being this middle class shop owner and being able to send his son to a prestigious school uh meant great acclaim for Herman. Mm-hmm. And basically meant, hey, look at me, look at how great I'm doing as a middle class uh German citizen that I'm able to send my son to these rich schools with all of your kids. I'm as good as you are. And that's all that it meant to him. It wasn't about making sure that Kafka had a like education or had a better like set on life what mattered was how Herman looked in that moment and for a young Kafka this felt like torture to be blunt it mm-hmm. felt like being kind of like shoved and used as a tool to like your entire existence is nothing but to make your father look better mm-hmm. and no matter how hard you try it you never actually reach that goal and this is just when he's starting school. So Kafka hated the school entirely, even though he did well academically. He was said to find the school authoritarian uh, and dehumanizing, as I imagine many German schools were at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, just demand after demand, sit up straight, do with your manners which you will, and so on and so forth. These expectations that he had gotten at home probably seemed to just be carrying over into the real world this would at a young age all but confirm that this is just the way the world is like this is just the way that we live um as you guys could probably tell just like this wasn't a great start for him and it was these things that sowed the roots of kafka's work later in life the way he thought and uh the way that he wrote so two there there are two object or two adjectives that i would say are maybe the worst thing for creative minds to hear and that's authoritarian and dehumanizing like (laughs) if you ask any artist, like what are the two worst things something could be i think it's those two
3: okay
1: um and i assume that kafka would agree um it was around this time when he's forced into this situation that he. we can finally confirm that, like, this is the moment Kafka truly developed a very serious anxiety disorder. Um, I think at this point in the podcast, we're just going to take a short intermission from entertainment, and I actually have, uh, I have pulled up the National Institute of Mental Health, and I just want to kind of go over anxiety and what it is, uh, just so that we know what he was living with when dealing with this stuff, and we have a good general idea. So um, just kind of an overview of anxiety disorder. Occasional anxiety is an expected part of life. You might feel anxious when facing a problem at work before taking a test or before making important decisions, but anxiety disorder involves more than temporary worry or fear. For a person with anxiety disorder, the anxiety doesn't go away. It can get worse over time. Uh, the symptoms that can interfere with daily activities such as job performance, schoolwork, and relationships are always continuous. Um, There are several types of anxiety disorders. This includes generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, and various phobias related to the disorder. I think the one that best fits Kafka and the one that we're going to focus on is going to be the generalized anxiety disorder. That is kind of what he falls under, um, and a lot of what kind of stopped him from doing a lot in his life that he wanted to uh so just so that we have a an understanding of that and again we can throw this website uh in the show notes uh, so that you guys can do your own studying and do a deep dive into it uh just so that we all stay educated and know what we're talking about um people with generalized anxiety disorder also known as gad display excessive anxiety and worry most days for at least six months uh about a number of things such as personal health, work, social, inter- social interactions, and everyday routine life circumstances. Uh, the fear and anxiety can cause significant problems in areas of their life, such as social interactions, school, and work. Um, generalized anxiety disorder symptoms include the following. Feeling restless, wound up or on edge. Being easily fatigued. Having difficulty concentrating, mind going blank. Being being irritable, having muscle tension, difficulty controlling feelings of worry, having sleep sleep problems such as difficulty falling asleep, staying asleep, restlessness, or unsatisfying sleep. Now, I know we kind of goofed at the beginning, like, oh, we we have rimmed glasses and we smoke cigars, we drink bourbon and we have depression. Like that's who we are as people. But this is actually something that I deal with. And Michael, mm-hmm. from your gestures to yourself, it's something that you deal with as well. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, if I were to ask you guys to name a celebrity or person of importance who displays anxiety disorder off the top of your head with like no warning, it's hard to do, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was kind of making a face. I was like, um, I don't know anyone yeah, like that brain really blast Face."
1: So in reading Metamorphosis finally and understanding it and doing more research into Kafka, it means so much to know that like this guy who is like a hero to literature, this is shit that he dealt with on a daily basis. Yeah, it um, sucks this anxiety disorder. Now, all of those symptoms that I named, keep those all in mind, and as we go through the rest of uh, Franz Kafka's story and delve into metamorphosis, just keep those in the back of your mind and be looking out for them because there are, there's evidence of them um, all over the place. We, of course, now have a number of treatments for uh, anxiety, um, but at the time, they didn't. Nope. Even Even therapy was place and it doesn't seem like something that if, even if it were available it doesn't seem like something that herman would have allowed his son to experience anyway it would have been like admitting defeat if he were to allow his son to go to therapy or seek help for something like this it would just be a sign of weakness to him so i imagine that even if at the time they had something to help with anxiety uh franz kafka would not have seen it
0: mm-hmm. this was around the time that sigmund freud was really big too so he would have been sent to psychoanalyzing, and uh, nowadays it's kind of looked down upon in modern psychology, <laughs> unfortunately.
1: Yeah, it's it's not helpful. No, not at um, all. So due to the lack of studies in mental health, and as you said, they were just kind of getting on the ball about even studying um, like thought processes and things like that, and they weren't even doing it in, in, a, in a good way, as you said, Nick. Um, because all of this was so scarce, if not non-existent, Kafka would have to suffer with this anxiety for the rest of his life. This was Mm -hmm. not something that went away. Um, I think that it's fair to kind of warn you guys that when it comes to Kafka's story writing and Kafka's life in general, the basic themes are it starts bad and it gets worse.
3: A tragedy?
0: Rarely
1: do you find silver lightings or happiness within these tales. Hmm. so um with all that out of the way we can jump back in here so through great pressure of course we always find something of value um we find a diamond when we press coal um the pressure from an oyster will create a pearl things of that nature um and the same was with kafka as all of this was kind of building inside of him In this dark time of abuse at home and torture at school, Kafka turned to the only place where he felt safe, and he traveled deep into his mind and started writing. Uh, As Kafka matured, he began studying law at the demand of his father, who insisted that it would look better for the family. Again, we're seeing tones of his father just using him as a tool to further benefit himself. Um... And in, instead of doing what he wanted, which was studying chemistry, he abided by his father's wishes and decided to study law. Yeah, kind of crazy that this, this uh, literary genius initially wanted to be a chemist, and when that didn't work out, he wanted to study law because that's what made his dad happy.
0: Yeah, I mean, we, we like to poo-poo upon it nowadays, but back at that time and place, there was a lot of emphasis on, like, birthright and like who your parents were who your great-grandparents were Mm -hmm. are you from this Mm -hmm. house are you from that house and then how are you going to continue on this family line that's been going on since like what antiquity so that's important to keep in mind too but i'm not saying it's right by any measure of the imagination
1: right right for sure so while away at school um and away more importantly from his family kafka joined a literary club for german speakers which was a group of people who got together and shared their writing with each other. And this was kind of where he started seeing his first glimpses of success in something as they were telling him, like, your writing's really great. Like, this is all really good and stuff like that. This is also where he would meet his best friend by the name of Max Broad. Um, Max was everything Kafka wasn't. He was loud. He was outgoing. He was sure of himself. Um, Perhaps this is what drew Kafka in to begin with. But either way, they formed a friendship that would... Literally change history. This friendship would. We'll get to that later. He continued writing in this club, uh, but he didn't really pursue writing any further than that. Basically, he shared it and then he was done. Hmm. So jumping forward again on in in June of 1906, Franz Kafka graduated uh, with a degree in not literature. But unfortunately, law, uh, as his father insisted. And in that same year, Kafka took a job doing maybe the opposite of what his soul cried for. Uh, he became an unpaid intern for the local court system.
2: Mm. Hmm. <laughs> if that doesn't sound humanity draining, I don't know what does.
1: If there's one <laughs> thing that will kill any spirit, it is working as an unpaid intern for a local court system. Yeah, <laughs> Are you kidding me? And being like I said right (laughs) so because he was working this intern internship he was also uh forced back under his father's roof once more and back into the habit of accepting microaggressions and other cruelties um this left him falling even further into depression and worse uh the beginning signs of disassociation um Disassociation is actually a subject that this podcast has brushed on before in our episode on Adam Sandler, if you remember. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a state of pure nothingness. You don't experience or feel your life you're living. Oftentimes, people who suffer from dissociation compare their days to a dream-like state when only after they try to remember uh, do they realize how fast it passed them by. This This was poison that kafka kind of took it was a it was a prison that he locked himself yeah. in
2: can i can i ask you you real quick like have you two ever experienced like disassociation before
1: oh yeah it's
0: it's hard to say but i'm sure i have before if, if anything is a coping mechanism i mean there's yeah. some pretty like just to get out of like a boring state like let's say you're at somebody's house and you really don't like jive with the conversation and it's like, oh, okay, I guess i just go and think about trains for a while, I guess, or something like that. Please don't look at me.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, so to take even further, it's not even like you think about trains or anything like that. Or like you think about it. it's like literally a blank state. Like you are mm-hmm. not thinking, you are not processing information. Like it is just you are in the world, but you aren't experiencing it for a certain amount of time. Yeah, that'd be
0: like the evil twin brother of a, of a flow state or something like that.
2: Could that be? Said? Yeah, yeah, I okay. I, I could see I could see that. Um, but yeah, no, like that's something that like recently in this last year, especially like Jade and I have like spent Jade, my girlfriend, and I have spent a lot of time like thinking about because we both experience it fairly regularly. Like whenever we um, experience like. Anything that is, like, overly complicated or in a harmful way, overly complicated in a harmful way, or, like, just a very hard situation, it's, like, it very much is a very easy coping mechanism to fall into.
0: Yeah, and it's terrible because you need to make a decision based off the information that's coming in, but there's just too much going in at one time. Then it's like, hey, Brian, I need you to do this thing for me, and it's like shuts down completely. It's
1: not even your brain like refusing to do a thing that you know it needs to. You make decisions just they don't feel important to you and because of that, you don't care about the consequences of them. Mm-hmm. Oh. And because you don't care about the consequences, it, it gets written off as nothing in your mind. So yeah. you put no thought into it.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like well, you still might have memory of certain things happening while it's going on, but none of the decisions or any thoughts that happen while you're in it as far as like my experience goes, like are like important or like meaningful enough for you to actually retain. Interesting.
1: Yeah. The way that I, the way that I best identified disassociation is, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you just had a dream and you're trying to grab onto what that dream was and try to remember what your dream was. That mm-hmm. way you could talk about it later on. And then just as you're grabbing onto it, it slips away and you're like, I can't even fucking remember what I dreamed anymore. I hate mm-hmm. that. That's, That's disassociation, but it's not your dream. It's your life.
2: Yeah. No, that, like, when you describe it that way, that actually is the case for me. And I don't know if that's a circumstance of having many concussions. Um,
1: I didn't have concussions. It just happened to me. I well, just, it just happened. That's
2: the thing, though. I don't. I don't know if it's a circumstance of like actual memory problems, or if that mm-hmm. is what I experience because that happens to me on a near daily basis, multiple
1: times a day. And it's terrifying because it's that when it's a dream, you're like, oh well, it was a dream. But when it's your life, you're like, I'm not getting that back. Yeah. No.
2: <laughs> there's like le- there's there's legitimate times where I think like Jade is like gaslighting me into believing like something didn't like happen that didn't ha- that I think didn't happen. Where it's just like, no, Michael, we had this exact conversation. You said this, this, and this. So it' like zero memory. I hmm. do not like I remember like maybe that coming up, but like I don't remember anything about the conversation,
1: yeah, it definitely has its its backfires for sure,
0: yeah, I'm trying to I don't know if there has ever been a time when at least recently when I experienced that sort of negative thought process, but um, if you
1: don't, that's great. Yeah, I mean, not everyone does. That's the thing. It's not like deja vu that happens to everyone. Yeah. If it doesn't happen to you, better to you, man. That's great.
0: Yeah, but I'm trying to like emphasize with you guys, like what, how does this?
2: Well, I mean, you can empathize with people who experience mental health problems or like mental oh, disorders
1: yeah. or something without like having it. Like, yeah, it's it's Symp- sympathize, right? That's when you Emp- don't
2: empathize, sympathize. um... I mean, empathy, empathy empathy and sympathy are very similar
1: terms. I have both of them
0: for anyone that suffers that because that sounds terrible. Um,
1: Yeah, it's rough. And it's a it's a byproduct of depression and anxiety disorder. Yeah, it's a coping mechanism to deal Mm -hmm. with that. And that's kind of what Kafka fell into. It sucks. Um, Yeah. And with it, I mean, just running straight down the list of uh, symptoms of the disorder, um, Kafka locked himself away in his mind during the day and then by night he would dive deep into the void of himself and his consciousness to do his best writing he stayed up all night writing that's what he did Hmm. he would only find time to write during the night and to get work done during the night which is like a thing that people with depression identify with almost immediately
0: yeah kudos for him for like writing that stuff down in the first place That can be therapeutic in and of itself,
2: (laughs) yeah. I mean, hey, kudos to Kafka though for turning like using this as a springboard for something productive, yeah. I mean, life gives you lemons, I know. I'm I'm (laughs) sure it wasn't always the case, like,
1: no, he technically didn't do any of that. Oh, okay, uh, I was gonna
2: say because, like, I experienced this very heavily my freshman year of college, (laughs) and like, Mm -hmm. I literally didn't sleep for I think six days straight. Uh, and instead of being productive and like studying and like all that, no, I just watched anime the whole time. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's I mean, that's the equivalent of what Kafka did. He threw himself into his work and then instead of getting like the work done that he needed to and like doing what he was actually supposed to be doing, he would just do what he liked, which at the time was writing.
2: Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. You know? Yeah. I mean, easily, that was, that was when I marathoned a show called Bleach uh which if you guys haven't heard if you've seen if you've seen bleach like bleach is like three or four hundred episodes long like something ridiculous i marathoned it all within a week
1: jesus christ i didn't sleep
2: (laughs) did you at least you know what hold on to
1: that because there's a part of this that that you're gonna relate to oh i'm sure in in indefinitely
2: i'm sure there's plenty of stuff in this that i'm gonna heavily relate to
1: (laughs) And that's why I love Kafka so much is because he really does feel like a modern day person dealing with the shit that we dealt with in a time where like they don't openly admit that it used to happen Yeah. because like mental illness and like dealing with all this shit feels so new age because like they just didn't talk about it before. But yep. this is like a guy who talked about it and whose byproducts of it became like super important to culture and entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um. So let's move right along. Um. Two he found solace in the fact that uh soon he would have obtained enough experience to move far away from his father and join an international office that would send him to work abroad. This was the hope that Kafka held on to this was his shining light to disassociate to um in nineteen o seven Kafka did sign to an Itali- an Italian insurance company um but it wasn't stationed in Italy uh it was instead left. Right where he started, he was working in an office in Prague, uh, giving up living his dream and moving abroad. Hmm. Instead, he stayed still under Herman's roof. Um, to make matters worse, at his job, Kafka was mistreated and overworked to the point uh, of giving up his late night writing sessions altogether in favor of much needed sleep, hmm. just because he was physically exhausted. Again, we're moving straight down the list of symptoms here. Oh, yeah. So... Eventually, Kafka started a new job away from this uh, Italian insurance company. um, And it harbored hours that ended in the mid-afternoon. Kafka found out, and again, this is probably going to hit home with you. Kafka kind of discovered that if he got off at, like, 2 o'clock and he went straight home and went to bed at, like, 2.30 then he could wake up at 8 o'clock and then stay up all night and he could pick up his writing again. Hmm. So that's what he did. He got in the habit of waking up early, going to work, coming straight home, going to sleep, and then waking up after everybody was asleep and working on his writing. Um, I can heavily relate he, he, to that. I, I've yeah.
2: accidentally fallen into that lately where I'm waking up at 3.30 in the morning.
1: I did that yesterday. <laughs> I did that yesterday.
2: I'm I'm now on second day in a row of that.
1: Yeah. So Kafka went on record in saying that um, the time that he spent writing didn't feel like a calling or feel like a release from his torture. Instead, he said it felt like communication, which is a weird Kafka way of saying that. I mean, just from speculation alone. Maybe it meant that he felt this was the only way to truly understand the mess of negative emotions that constantly clouded him, or maybe he was trying desperately to find meaning in the torment that he endured. That's something that you often see with people who go through stuff like this, is they want to find reason. like They want to do this one big thing, that way all the suffering feels like it was worth it. Hmm. And maybe that's what he was doing.
0: Who Who is he who is he communicating with? I mean, cause you called it a communication. Obviously he intended for somebody or something to read his works. Right.
1: I think it was a communication with himself. This was hmm. finally a chance to look at himself and understand interesting who he was and, and what it meant to be him. Yeah. Yeah. So I, that's, I, go ahead. I, uh,
2: yeah, I, I think that is the right in- analysis of that. Cause like, when you're in that sort of state, you if you don't have anyone to talk to who you can talk to about this stuff, uh, th- you reach a certain point where you have to get something out into the world, just in <laughs> right. order to, um, just in order to like have some sort of dialogue with. Sometimes
1: anything. just to prove, just to prove that what you're feeling is real, and it's 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 physical yeah and
2: Um, i a lot of the times what i've found is that like i have like a vague understanding of how i'm feeling sometimes mm -hmm. like especially if i'm in like a really bad time and once i start talking to someone or once i start um writing something down that's when i start feeling like oh that's what this is like, it's mm-hmm. like, I've, f- I've felt sad, but what is the sad? Is it anxiety sad? Is it just generalized depression sad? Is it a specific depression about a certain thing or what? And it's not until I actually vocalize it in some sort of way, have some sort of open communication that I can actually understand what I'm feeling.
0: Hmm. Yeah, right. I guess it's it's adding structure to a, a thought, which is like this thing that floats away and mm-hmm. It's just kind of up in the air, and then when you write it down, it's a physical thing. It's a black and white text. It's
1: there in front yeah, of you. it's there. Yeah, right? and you're facing it. And you can build on it. You can build on it,
2: too, because when, when it's an ambiguous thought or emotion, and it flutters away, you have to essentially re-grab it and mm-hmm. reprocess that thought and emotion again.
0: Yeah, it's an endless cycle of bullshit.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, when you're dealing with dissociation, especially, you can have that thought and then it float away, and then it'll hit you six months later as hard as it did that first time. <laughs>
0: Maybe mm-hmm. even worse, because it just keeps circling and circling around, and it's like, holy shit, I just thought about this. Why don't you go away?
1: Yeah, definitely. Hmm. So let's let's look at some silver lighting, uh, again, coming Kafka's way. It's always a roller coaster um, with a general downward trajectory. But let's talk about just a quick up. So that same year, um, Max Broad... Kafka's friend from college, who we had mentioned before, um, convinced Kafka to publish um, his first story. Um, And it did not sell very well, but it did receive decent reviews. And the reviews were decent enough that it convinced Kafka that he should keep writing and keep doing what he's doing. Hmm. So it wasn't something that he immediately gave up on as he had for basically everything else in his life. So let's get forward a little bit more. And in 1912, Kafka was invited by his friend um, to a dinner party at, at his house. His friend, of course, being um, Max, in case we've already forgotten. Um, it was there that he met a girl named Felice Bauer. And this is kind of the first uh, show of Kafka in a, in a romantic state. And I just think that it's an interesting study. Um, That was a, Felice Bauer was a woman that Kafka would describe in his diary as follows. This is a straight Kafka quote. He said, when I arrived at Broads on the 13th of August, she was sitting at the table. I was not at all curious about who she was, but rather took her for granted at once. Bony, empty face that wore its emptiness openly. Bare throat, a blouse thrown on, looked very domestic in her dress, although, as it turned out, she by no means was. I alienated myself from her a little by inspecting her so closely. Almost broken nose, blonde, somewhat straight, unattractive hair, strong chin. As I was taking my seat, I looked at her closely for the first time. By the time I was seated, I already had an unshakable opinion. He had decided that he had fallen madly in love with her.
0: That didn't sound positive at
1: all. Not at fucking all, Nick. (laughs) But that's Kafka.
0: Like, she's kind of ugly. I don't like her hair. Her blouse is disheveled. But uh, you
1: know what? And then he got a closer look at her, and he was like, "Mm, and I'm in love with her. (laughs) So... Kafka, being the man that he is and being oh so human and so close to us as he is, he waited to tell her about his feelings until she had already gone back to Berlin. So we're talking from Prague to Berlin. She went back to Berlin and he wrote her a letter and the two started writing from there. (laughs) Literally, it was like they met at a party and then he texted her and was like, yo, you cute joey, you want to hit up with me? You up? (laughs) (laughs) Kafka... From that day forth, wrote her two times per day.
0: Is, I guess two that's times a lot. per day. I guess that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah,
1: I mean, yeah, we text like a lot during a day, but two full letters a day—that's crazy. We're
0: talking twelve-point font, MLA format, and
1: we're talking handwritten, probably oh, okay, it's eighteen yeah. something. Fair enough. So, well, this is nineteen something. So maybe typewriter. So six weeks later, Kafka would sit down after being inspired by this meeting with this woman um and in one night from dusk until dawn he would write one of his most famous stories known as the judgment have you guys ever heard of the judgment
2: no i haven't
1: nope i think it's something that you're going to want to look into after this yeah um it's a story in which a son goes to care for his sick elderly father only to have the father raise from bed and throw his son in the river to his death. Okay. Kafka, are you all right, Bud? That seems it. It fits though, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah.
0: I don't know if it's much of a story, but yeah. I mean, you just described it in a sentence, so <laughs> I'm sure there's more nuance right. to it. Of course,
1: there's a lot to be dealt with there. Uh, the story saw great success and led Kafka to see himself transform more into a writer by trade, which we can all be thankful for. Good on him. Um. So. Next, he would write a tale that brought uh, Kafka's stories to us tonight, which is the one that I want to talk to you guys about. We've finally gotten to the metamorphosis. Um, I'm going to give you guys a quick rundown of what the metamorphosis is about. I pulled this straight from the Wikipedia page because it was well written, so I took it. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah. I didn't read it either. Um, It's okay. But that... No, I I read the book. I own it. I read it. I I finally did read it, but this is going to remind me of stuff that I forgot. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you're right. We're running a little short on time, so I'll try to rush this, but uh, it's about a man named Gregor Samsa who wakes up one morning to find himself transformed into a monstrous vermin, also often depicted as a beetle. I'm pointing to the cover of my book to show you. It's a visual gag. People who are listening won't get it.
0: Icky icky bugs. That's Uh, what we need to...
1: Icky, A giant bug is what he has turned into. Uh, He initially considers the transformation to be temporary and slowly ponders the consequences of this metamorphosis. Unable to get up and leave the bed, Gregor reflects on his job as a traveling salesman and cloth merchant, which he characterizes as being full of temporary and constantly changing human relationships, which never come from the heart. Uh, He sees his employer as a despot and would quickly quit his job had he not been his family's sole breadwinner and working off his bankrupt father's debts.
3: Hmm. while
1: trying to move gregor finds that his office manager and the chief clerk uh, has shown up to check on him indignant about gregor's unexpected absence gregor attempts to communicate with both the manager and his family but all they can hear from behind the door is incomprehensible vocalizations uh, gregor laboriously drags himself across the floor and opens the door. The manager, upon seeing the transformed Gregor, flees from the apartment. Gregor's family is horrified, and his father drives him back into his room under threat of violence. Um, With Gregor's unexpected incapacitation, the family is deprived of their financial stability, although Gregor's sister Greta, now uh, she's away from the sight of him. She takes to supplying him with food, which they find he can only eat rotten. Gregor begins to accept his new identity and begins crawling on the floor's wall and ceiling. Discovering Gregor's new pastime, Greta decides to remove some of the furniture to give Gregor more space. She and her mother begin taking furniture away, but Gregor finds their actions deeply distressing. He desperately tries to save a particularly loved portrait on the wall of a woman clad in fur, Uh, His mother loses consciousness at the sight of Gregor clinging to the image uh, to protect it. As Greta rushes to assist her mother, Gregor follows her and is hurt by medicine bottles falling on his face. His father returns home from work and angrily hurls apples at Gregor. One of them lodges into a sensitive spot on his back and severely wounds him. Uh, Gregor suffers from his injuries for several weeks and takes very little food. He is increasingly neglected by his family, and his room becomes used as storage to secure their livelihoods. The family takes three tenants into their apartment. The cleaning lady uh, evades Gregor's isolation by leaving his door open for him on evenings uh, that the tenants eat out one day his door is left open despite the presence of the tenant. Gregor, attracted by Greta, his sister's violin playing in the living room, uh, crawls out of his room and is spotted by the unsuspecting tenants, who complain about the apartment's unhygienic conditions and cancel their tenancy. Um, Greta, who has tired of taking care of Gregor and realizes the burden his existence puts on each one of the each one of them in the family, um, tells her parents they must get rid of quote-unquote it or they will all be ruined gregor understanding uh, that he is no longer wanted dies of starvation before sunrise they the uh, relieved and optimistic family take a tram ride out to the countryside and decide to move into a smaller apartment to save more money during the short trip mr and mrs samsa realize that in spite of the hardships that have brought some paleness to her face greta has grown up into a pretty and well-figured lady and they think about finding her a husband and that is the end of the story
2: hmm. yeah there's lots of lots of symbolism there uh,
1: lots and lots so do you guys want to talk about uh some more famous interpret well let's talk about our interpretations first uh just from that brief summary that I gave you. This again is entertain this. and My goal is to have you guys read this uh, and be want want to read this book. Um but let's just talk about what maybe we think uh this is all about before we kind of delve into what other people think it may be about.
0: <laughs> it's a very happy ending to begin with. So I don't know if I entertained. No, of course not it, but uh yeah, not I was supposed meant to, meant to be. in be English class. Um and I didn't but we discussed it like in depth mm. and I remember none of that actually because high school for me was a long time ago, you know, cause I'm 84, 84 years old. But, um, right. <laughs> the first thing I couldn't get out of my mind was like, how does he turn into a bug? <laughs> like, is there some sort of witchcraft going on here? Like take, take the story at, at face value. Like it, it, what, what kind of magic is going on here? But then if you go a level deeper, it's like, well, maybe this is how somebody who, has depression might feel like a burden to the family and kind of like an outcast too, in a way. So I don't know. Yeah. I,
2: I think with the knowledge that he suffered from like heavy disassociation, Mm -hmm. um, I feel like it is to me a representation of how of his own behavior in a disassociative state. Uh, mm-hmm. He is unable to, the big thing that tipped me off was the inability to communicate. Um, the family and the shop owner, or the main clerk or whatever, only able to hear unintelligible sounds. Unintelligible vocalizations, I think is what you said. Um, right. Hmm. And then from there, it is all the perceived interpretations of. Uh, of himself. So it is what he... For me, I think it's what he thinks everyone else is seeing him as. Mm. Uh, hence, seeing him as an insect, a burden, uh, and eventually ending with him dying of starvation. Or, in other words, because you don't die of starvation overnight, uh, in my mind, that's him killing himself. And the, in the worst way possible. The, deciding... Yeah, deciding to end the burden himself.
0: Yeah. Sure. Ouch.
1: So a a big part of what this story is about, um, you guys are pretty much spot on, but a big part of what this story is about is about I mean, it's called the Metamorphosis, not because he metamorphosized into a bug, but because over the the beginning to end of the story, the metamorphosis that we see Gregor take place in is that of he went from being a human who got turned into a bug, but still had human like qualities so much so that he had lines to begin with. He had speeches like he could speak to people. He lost that and became more animalistic and more animalistic to a point where they no longer considered him to be Gregor. They considered him to just be a burden. It. Um, and maybe it's that... It's that loss of humanity that was trying to be portrayed in this. But then it raised the question, who is the victim in this? Lost? If this is a giant symbol, who is the person to which we are losing humanity for? And to that, I think it's people who deal with the same thing that Kafka had dealt with at the time, which is anxiety, dissociation, and depression. Um, I'm going to read through the symptoms of generalized anxiety disorder one more time and this time with a little bit of context into the story of metamorphosis and just see how this sits with you feeling restless wound up or on edge gregor takes in takes it on himself to begin running around the room the ceilings and walls to a point where he cannot stay still long enough that he starts to take to crawling up on the ceiling and then falling onto his back like repeatedly falling 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 because he can't stop moving. Easily fatigued, so after all is said and done, in almost every paragraph in the story *Metamorphosis*, it always ends with Gregor getting tired and hiding under the couch and laying down and sleeping. Even at the beginning, the the being easily fatigued can come from Gregor could not get out of his bed, and not just because he was a bug, but because he felt it was so comfortable and he didn't want to get up from it. Hmm. Um having difficulty concentrating mind going blank he loses all aspect of human thinking in this he doesn't concentrate on anything he turns completely animalistic i think that one's self-explanatory being irritable a number of times uh he is attacking people a number of times he no longer cares about what people think he's just acting as he wishes Um, Another one is muscle tension, which can be interpreted as the fact that he's turned into a bug and is constantly complaining about his weak little legs that can't carry him very far. Um, That one's a bit of a stretch I'll give you, but it kind of fits. (laughs) Difficulty controlling feelings of worry. When they start taking Gregor's furniture away, he worries that they no longer see him as a human being and that by losing all the furniture, he is losing his self and his self-worth. Is it granted worrying? Maybe in this case, yes, but in normal circumstances, small things like that usually don't mean the end of the world. But in this case, in Kafka's mind, it most definitely did. Hmm. Uh, having sleep problems such as falling asleep, staying asleep, restlessness, or unsatisfying sleep, Gregor doesn't actually sleep at all in this entire story, though it takes place over months. Never once does he sleep. Hmm. So just going straight down the list, Gregor is for sure, if he is a human, and this is a metaphor, dealing with anxiety. Uh, Kind of pinging back to you, Michael, because you nailed it. It is absolutely a way of saying, I feel useless. I feel like a burden. I can't function anymore as a human being. I am trapped. I am looked down on by my family. They no longer see worth in me. I would be better off starving to death.
3: Hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I can see the path he took too, like to get there. Starting out because mm-hmm. look, we all come out of the box. We're out of the baby factory or whatever. As like, you know, a pristine object. We come out or I'm a human. I'm I'm okay. I can do whatever I want. And then slowly I'm okay, dad. I'm okay, dad. <laughs> as, as your life goes on, you get molded into you know, sometimes a little bug that because a lot of that was from his father, probably just beating him down yeah. and the world just beating him down over and over and over again. And then he's like, you know what? I'm a bug. You know, I'm nothing more than a I'm bug. I'm a
1: pest. I'm a pest. This is, this is my self-worth talking. I am a bug.
0: So I don't know what that was supposed to add to the conversation, but that's my interpretation. I mean, you
1: made me feel better about the episode and all because okay. you said that you saw the path we took. That was nice. Yeah,
0: I see the, yeah. I see the path that he took. Yeah,
1: <laughs>
2: yeah I wonder if... If he picked a beetle, um, for more than just like feeling like a pest, because um, like if you go into it even further, we talked about like how you eventually dive into this like almost animalistic nature. Um, but at the end of the day, like I have like I have two dogs. If you can't hear them whining in the background right now. <laughs> okay, um, no. <laughs> Yeah, they're 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 talk howling. It's adorable, but a little oh, annoying because no, no. they do this all day. <laughs> but um, but from that, my dogs are still at a baseline able to communicate with us in some way. Yeah, they're cute um, too. An insect, a beetle, is physically incapable of communicating with us. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, there is like no chance of interpretation or anything. It's just relying on base instinct and. For uh, the other people around him to take into account that there may be some humanity left in there. And eventually, even that leaves.
1: Yeah, to kind of add on to your point, when you see like a dog, you're like, oh, it's a dog. And like when you see like a cat, you're like, oh, look, cute, it's a cat. When you see a raccoon, you're like, okay, it's kind of cute. I should say away from (laughs) it, but it's cute. Even skunks are like that. If there was a living creature to which every human looked at and immediately assumed it was worthless and wishes that it were dead, it's a beetle.
2: Or maybe an ant. At least at least in a European standpoint, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. I'd say that. An ant or a... Well, I, I shouldn't say a spider, but I mean,
1: <laughs> so, sorry. I mean, let's well, let's consult the text real quick. Let's consult Metamorphosis, because never does he actually say that it's a beetle. It's just kind of widely assumed that that's what hmm. he meant. The way that he describes it is a little bit different he says in his book he says um as gregor awoke one morning from a restless dream he found himself transformed in his bed into a monstrous insect he lay on his hand or he lay on his hard armor-like back and saw when he lifted his head a little he his curled brown abdomen segmented by stiff arches so in okay. description it's beetle like but we don't know for sure what kind of insect it was could be a yeah, cobo but
2: he still picked an insect over any other animal yeah exactly definitely an insect and that's what matters mm-hmm.
1: so to kind of drive home the point that again you were you were making i mean technically both of you were making um the realization that he is a bug lasts gregor two paragraphs and then he is more concerned with what's going on outside his window. And more concerned about his work, and what his work is like, and his family, and what his family's doing outside the door. He doesn't bring up being a bug again for a while. Hmm. We're talking like pages and pages and pages and pages, if not ever again. You, you are meant to understand he's a bug, and then from that point on, it is rarely mentioned.
2: Yeah, because I feel like that's meant to that's meant to put you in the shoes of his family and either in the shoes, I don't know, either in his own shoes as still perceiving the actions of his family around him, uh, in, in the same way that he would of like them seeing him as losing his humanity and him just having to experience that. Um, I don't know. I feel like that's more accurate. Yeah. I'm, put you I'm thinking in the shoe- it's more of
0: like him. Cause he's just finding yeah. a way to distract himself from his, you know physical form if anything else really
2: well what i'm saying is it's meant to put you in the shoes of him where you are mm-hmm. you are presented this fact about it about him that you that is inherently important to the story yep. but is intentionally not brought up again in mm-hmm. and the effect of that in my mind is you are probably going to forget that he is an insect. Or if you're not going to forget, you're meant to still perceive the humanity there because you're only introduced to him as not being a fully transformed person, but more of this human that is the, experiencing stuff in this body. But as it slowly right. goes on, you are experiencing the treatment from his family from this perspective of him still being a human on the and inside. And the
1: narrative does, sh- does shift the the narrator shifts from talking about Gregor's experience to talking about his sister's experience to talking about the family's experience Mm -hmm. to the point where Gregor becomes a side thought in what's going on with the family. Mm -hmm. Um, And just another thing that I want to drive home on kind of interpreting and analyzing metamorphosis, at at the end, it feels a little weird that it ends on the note that their parents are like, we should find this girl a wife.
3: Mm -mm.
1: (laughs) Isn't that just excellent symbolism for like... Move on. Like, okay. They're just gonna move on with their lives. <laughs> mm-hmm. They've they're moving on to the next thing. Nothing to see here. They could they aren't gonna think twice about what just happened. That's well, and for up.
2: better or worse, it's like it's not even just like whether or not it's like messed up or not. It's like that's kind of a necessity. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. at the end of the day, like yeah, like you can go into it with certain like views and everything, but like it's either like no matter what at the end of the day, you have to move on. Like mm-hmm. whether whether or not you paid the person any respect or not. Or, like, treated them as a human or not, at the end of the day, they're going to move on in some way, shape, or form.
1: Right. So there are a number of interpretations that you can go with. Um, Some of them take a more feminist route and say that it's more a story of Greta's metamorphosis into a woman, um, which is fair. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, that is for sure a fair side story. That, That I would chalk up to just great writing, though. I think when we're talking, uh, the kind of road that we've been taking with Kafka, um, I think that it led us exactly where we needed to be with this interpretation that we have here. Um, So, to kind of wrap up, uh, Kafka was diagnosed with tuberculosis. Nick, you're our history buff here. You know that back in the day you were diagnosed with tuberculosis. That was basically a death Death sentence. sentence. Like,
0: look at Arthur Morgan in Red Dead Redemption 2. He gets tuberculosis, he's like, I'm fine, I'm fine, and then (laughs) he starts coughing and dead instantly.
1: Now, it's not, it's not an immediate killer. Of course. Um, tubercul- tuberculosis takes a long time to set in, and you really don't know how long you have once you're diagnosed with it.
0: It's a real bad way to go.
1: Right. So, though his love for Felice Bauer um, was true, he broke off his engagement in fear of leaving her a widow without ever telling her why. Um, this enraged her, and she ended up marrying another man still within Kafka's lifetime. Which sucks. Oof. This left him completely alone for the better part of the rest of his life, though he would meet a girl in Murids. I didn't pronounce that right. Um, while he was trying to find a cure for his tuberculosis. And her name was Dora Diamond. Mm-hmm. On his final days, Kafka was forced to check into a sanatorium in Vienna. Um, but before he did, he stopped in Prague once more to visit his old friend, Max Broad one last time there Kafka gave Max all of his unfinished works, which was pretty much everything other than the judgment. Um, and his short stories that he had published, he had not yet published some of his greater works that he's well known for today. These were all in manuscript form. Um, and he gave all of those to Max and he said, you, I want you to burn these. You're the only person I can trust. I want you to burn these. Burn? Uh, But Max was a well-known and well-established liar. (laughs) And uh, it's speculated that Kafka purposely did this, knowing that his friend would never burn them, and actually in hopes that his friend who he trusted would finish and publish those works. And that's exactly what Broad did. Um, And that's the reason why we actually know who Kafka is today. All of those works uh, that made him famous, he actually didn't ever get to see published, read, or enjoyed. He had died far before. To put a bow on the life of Kafka, and to just throw a veil over it and tell you exactly what it is, on June 3rd, Kafka died of his illness, but on his deathbed, he wrote to his newfound love, Dora Diamond's father, asking to marry her, to which he received a very simple one-word reply no he was not he (laughs) He
0: can't catch a break damn
1: just the word no and that's how he died Oof! in bed of tuberculosis after reading that he was not allowed to marry this woman who had been taking care of him for the better part of a year what a shame so to end things, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, another man who you were probably told to read in high school, but didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I love Kurt Vonnegut. I actually did read Kurt Vonnegut in high school and I very, I, I love his work. Um, Kurt Vonnegut once wrote that Kafka's stories exemplify a certain type of fiction in which a protagonist starts miserable only to see things get continuously worse. And that probably is because that's exactly how Kafka's life went. Mm. And though, uh, This may have, too, been the path for Kafka. His works, such as Metamorphosis, um, lend themselves as a cautionary tale as to what may happen if you don't lead your own life. Sometimes life gets hard, and you have to force yourself onto your tiny legs or off of your comfortable bed, and sometimes you even have to force yourself to eat Um, because only when you succumb to the Metamorphosis do we become no more worthy of life than a bug? And to that I say, thank you for entertaining this. (laughs) Drop the mic. (laughs) I'll
0: be right back. I'm going to go cry in the bathroom for a while.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's one of those for sure. It's for sure one of those episodes.
2: I liked it though. So that's what I got. I I really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you. It wasn't Um, fun,
2: but you know what? We got there.
1: I think through all this study, I have a much deeper respect for Kafka and for the work that he did produce, because, I mean, we talked about a lot in this episode. We talked about a lot of uh, mental disorders, a lot of things that we as people struggle with, and I personally know the difficulty of trying to just do anything, trying to do anything with all of this stuff weighing on top of you. Hell, even writing this episode, it took me days and days and days because i would just refuse to do it i would sit down at my computer or say i'm gonna do it and then i'd go take a nap it's hard or i would it i i wrote this script and this is again full transparency to kind of get the point across i wrote the script at four o'clock today is when i started it
0: 4 p.m that
1: is when that is when anxiety and stress finally motivated me 4 p.m. Yes, that is when anxiety and stress finally motivated me to start doing this, and that's what it took. I'm happy you did. The fact that he was, the fact that he was able to accomplish as much as he did—several books, several novellas, and a, a infinite amount of short stories—all written in this same kind of way that explor n- not just told but explored his mental desires and his mental illnesses and the things that he struggled with i have so much respect for that um and i'm happy to have brought him onto our show spiritually and given him his day in the sun on entertain this
0: yeah i mean it was a, it's a tough thing to do i'm glad you did it but i also see why you maybe didn't want to write it for so long cuz it's a tough subject to talk yeah. about but I'm glad that we got there. I'm glad that we did.
1: Well, let's. As I was saying, let's jump onto a happier note. Um, we're gonna go ahead and take a short little break. We're gonna hear another one of Nick's uh, film festival reviews. Not this Nick, the other Nick. Um, and <laughs> and after that, we're gonna have the girls back from More Magazine. Uh, they brought us a quick this for this week. So we'll see you guys then.
4: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, fans, listeners of Entertain This. This is Nick here back again with another review coming from Sundance Film Festival 2021. The next film I have here to present for you guys and offer you all my quick little review on is a little film called A Glitch in the Matrix. And this film comes to us from director-writer Rodney Asher, who brought us such films as Room 237, which is a documentary on The Shining, as well as The Nightmare, which is a documentary on sleep paralysis, which messed me up for a number of nights, so tread lightly when you go into that movie. And A Glitch in the Matrix is no exception to the rule when it comes to Rodney Asher's previous films, in the sense that this is a documentary that presents a very harrowing and puzzling uh, topic and brings it out to the front, and and lets people that subscribe to this belief really kind of do their part in, I guess, advocating and/or uh, convincing us that this is a viable worldview, so to speak, uh, simulation theory. You know, the, the the idea that we are living in a simulation, that reality is not what it seems, that. You know, we need to wake up and see that, you know, all we are in in many regards is ones and zeros programming code, if you will, in a larger sort of uh, scheme. Basically, we're being puppeted by a, a supreme being or computer or calculated system that has us on predetermined tread lines that take us in one direction without deviating in other areas and, um, and, and where in re- and where in our current reality and things that we see in a day in day in and day out basis leads, uh, leads us to believe that this is something that could be real. And that is what a lot of the uh, testimonial people in this film try to do. They kind of uh, give, sort of context of where they came where they started from and and where the idea of simulation theory came to them like how they came to that um that line of thinking what changed in their life to make them think that this is all a simulation and sort of some of the more anecdotal evidence in their own personal lives that lead them to believe that that's what's going on here Uh, not only are those testimonials from uh, people that we actually don't see—we only see their sort of like uh, avatars, basically. So think sort of VR, you know, Ready Player One sort of uh, type of characters. And we get some moments from doctors and scientists talking about you know the probability of this being a, a thing, right? Like, are are we all living in sort of a bubble, right? Is this are we living in the Matrix, right? You know, Neo and and Morpheus and all those characters. It is harrowing. It is puzzling, baffling. I laughed at a number of moments because it it truly is a bonkers concept. It kind of breaks your brain a little bit. But I also found myself feeling deeply sorrowful for the people that really subscribe to this belief because it seemed to me, and this is my opinion, that these are very troubled individuals, that this particular worldview offers no real hope or purpose. And it kind of uh, devalues things to a very, uh, minimal level where it's almost like, what's the point of doing anything if this is how life is. And it, it just feels very sad and kind of pessimistic and very just, you know, upsetting in, in some respects. So, I felt bad for some of the people that were really on the whole simulation theory train. There's a bunch of really great visual uh, guides to kind of illustrate a lot of what these people are talking about. So so it's easier for you to digest this kind of concept. And there is an especially troubling uh, testimonial with a guy and Rodney Asher. And this guy is basically, you know, super obsessed with the Matrix film, walks around in a black trench coat and black sunglasses, listening to the Matrix soundtrack constantly. And he basically starts to feel like he is Neo and that he is living in a simulation and he needs to wake up and wake other people up. And a lot of the people around him are just, you know, NPCs, AI, like just, you know, not real, basically ones and zeros, that he's living in a program. And what follows is a very chilling story with a lot of twists and turns that I could not believe was an actual true story. And I think you guys will really glom onto this. And it, because it's a fascinating watch, it's super fun, it's pretty quick, it's, it's a brisk like hour 30, hour 40 minutes. Not too hard to get through. Super, super interesting documentary. I was a big fan of this one. I would absolutely recommend it. It is streaming, so you can rent it on most uh, VOD platforms. And I foresee a potential episode of Entertain This with the rest of the gang where we actually kind of dig into the whole idea of simulation theory. We all watch the film and then we kind of come together and talk about the ins and outs of it so if you guys would like that please let alex and the rest of the gang know and uh we'll see about getting that getting that down the pipeline so that was my review for a glitch in the matrix we would love to know what you guys think about the film if you check it out and i'll see you guys next episode with another review
1: that little interlude um as we transition back into the episode uh luckily we have with us back again uh the the good folk from over at more magazine who you may recognize from last week's episode they did a fantastic job they did such a good job we decided to bring them back to do this week's quick this so i'll throw it over to you guys
5: good to be back hello
1: what's up gamers it's me <laughs> Magazine. we're back <laughs>
5: so ari and i wanted to use the quick this to talk about one of our very favorite maybe movies of all time but certainly disney movies uh lilo and stitch so should we start the okay. timer yeah all right that's a classic there go. Ari, go feel free to jump in at any time you got it oh we will <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, Lilo and Stitch is a 2002 animated science fiction comedy drama produced by the Walt Disney feature animations. Um, it was written and directed by Chris Sanders and Dean DeBla in their directorial debuts. Perfect <laughs> <DeBla>. pronunciation. <laughs> I am hoping so. Otherwise, we're going to get angry DeBla,
1: emails. DeBla, I am Hercules Mullins. i love it to
5: Um, For those of you who haven't seen it, which is shocking, it is about a a little blue alien experiment who escapes from his captors on a sick-ass red spaceship and crashes down on Earth, Hawaii specifically, and gets adopted by a little girl named Lilo and her older sister Nani from a dog rescue. Even though he comes in with mm-hmm, six mm-hmm, legs mm-hmm. and antenna, and was recently hit by a semi, um, but we wanted to talk about. Andes. Go ahead. Uh, I was gonna say, and very blue, very blue. Um, certainly, mostly a cool palette mm-hmm. on this animal. Um, the small blue dog. I, I didn't.
1: I didn't remember the part of the movie where he got hit by the semi but
5: yeah repeatedly
1: it's in there it sure is (laughs) and he lived Mm
5: -hmm. um but we wanted to talk about But bambi had
1: bambi's mom had to die like yeah well not everybody gets it so cushy but one bullet to a deer makes a mom deer die this is bullshit disney get your shit together that was decades
5: afterward you know (laughs)
1: <laughs> Maybe they learned their lesson the first Maybe. one they're like all right we can't we can't just kill stitch. Rip Bambi's mom.
5: <laughs> Always remember. I mean it was pretty early in the movie too so Yeah. <laughs> bring it back. It the whole plot line there. But we decided to bring up this movie because in our last episode we did a segment led by Alex actually about the Bechtel test and when we were kind of spitballing about what to talk about we realized that one of our treasured old Disney movies uh, passes this Bechdel test. Because of Nani and Lilo, multiple
3: right. times does it pass bond. the Bechdel mm-hmm. test? Yeah, Nani
5: Which... talking to different shop owners about getting a job at the animal shelter. And Nani and, mm-hmm. and Lilo talking to, to Nani the lifeguard all the time. Yeah,
0: not about men though. Huh?
5: Not about men. Not but once. we also see two kind of strong, positive male role models in David, the love interest for Nani, who kind of. You know, makes himself a part of Lilo's life as well. And the um, infamous Agent Cobra Bubbles, who truly only wants the (laughs) best for Lilo. (laughs) So we have some strong (laughs) male and female characters popping out. Alien and human. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Doesn't matter what planet you're from.
5: Forgot about Agent Bubbles for a second there. (laughs) I know, and he has, (laughs) like, knuckle tattoos. How could we have forgotten?
1: That say his name, (laughs)
5: which is so badass. (laughs) Yeah, prison.
1: I feel like there are more letters in Agent Bubbles than there are on Knuckles, but I'm gonna believe you.
0: Maybe he has ten fingers on each hand or appendage. (laughs) I don't know. I haven't seen the movie in a while. I'm sorry. (laughs) Please continue. (laughs)
5: Um, just a little fun tidbit about the movie. Um, Chris Sanders, one of the directors, is the voice of Stitch.
1: That's kind of fun. That's fun to do it. Yeah.
5: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, we got learned Stitch impressions here. <laughs> okay. so here's Full
1: disclosure <laughs> because guys, we're not faking it very well. This is the second time we've recorded this <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. the, the first audio was lost to time. And the first time we did a competition where I came in with a very large hubris thinking that I could beat Michael at his own game, and I could not. That will not be happening this time. (laughs) I will not be walking into this battle pretending like I'm going to win. That's not happening. Now, Michael, if you would like to share your Stitch impression, you can, but they will not be hearing mine. It was lost to time. It was thrown to Valhalla, and there it shall stay.
5: I don't think it's fair that you're depriving okay, hope- the people of
4: that impression, <laughs> Alex. I feel well, like if they, they should hear. No. They can,
1: they can come find me and throw me in a van, tie me up, and force me to do it. That's the <laughs> only way they're going to hear it now, because it was thrown to Valhalla. I what hope do you y'all want me to do about note.
3: it? I feel That's the it
1: road is. to the afterlife. <laughs> what are we supposed to do? Nothing. We must kiss it goodbye and move
4: on.
5: But yes, entertain this uh, listeners and fans. I'm so sorry, GarageBand just really doesn't like me, I guess, but we're here. Computers? We're, we're talking about Lilo and Stitch and some of us are queer and Michael hit us with that Stitch impression.
2: Okay, should I do the same one yeah, as last time? I think so, yes. as long as
5: you don't peek that out your phenomenal. mic again. Okay, okay.
2: If not, I will copy and paste <laughs> yeah, the audio okay, file. We'll, we'll try. <laughs> don't tempt yeah, me.
1: okay. <sighs> <sighs> had to get into character. Yeah. <laughs>
5: Incredible. Thank so you, you so much. And there you now go. go. So <laughs> you guys are missing out
1: on anything. That's probably your five minutes if that's cool. Yeah, that was our five. <laughs> yeah, was.
5: That's an excellent note to end on. For sure.
1: Alright, sick. Thank you guys yeah. so much for listening again. And to my to my boys, to my two podcasting bros, happy one year doing the podcast. It's 52 been, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's It doesn't feel like it's been 52. It's been very entertaining for myself and I hope the listeners out there as well as always uh if there's anything that you guys want to hear us talk about if there's something on the show that we haven't covered already or if there's something you want to check out to maybe do an episode of the podcast on feel free to email us our email is entertainthispodcast at gmail.com you can also reach out to us on our twitter we are at entertain underscore this and on our instagram we are entertain this podcast. Go ahead and check out our pictures and comment on them. Nick runs that account so he might answer you. Just remember that if anyone answers you, it will be Nick. But send us those things that you want to hear us talk about so that you can entertain us and we can entertain you and you can entertain this. See you guys next Friday. Goodbye. Bye-bye.
0: This episode of Entertain This was written by Alex Steele with additional commentary from Michael Savoya and Nick Mustakangas. Our theme music is Rush Bubble by Aaron Spencer, with additional transitional music by DJW. Special thanks once again to Nick Wolf for his intermission movie
3: review. Tune in every Friday for new episodes, and thanks for listening.